specify how they had to be worn. So yes, yes, right. well, yeah. All right. Well, to that, I say welcome to Geeks with Kids, the geeky podcast from a parenting point of view. I am your host, David, and joining me this week is Steve. Hello. Mark. Hello. Eric. Howdy. An extra super duper special guest, Ed Greenwood. Hi. <laughs> Last week, we had a blast talking about the ubiquitous role playing game Dungeons and Dragons. Such a blast, in fact, that we decided to keep the momentum rolling this week and continue on with our talk of fantasy, basically fantasy in general, uh, I guess. But, uh, I can't. Well, I didn't bury the lead, Eric. You ruined my. Uh, you ruined my intro. I was going to say. You never know. You could have just. <laughs> it's not really burying the lead. From the bare naked ladies. Uh, no, who who are you, Ed? Okay, I I am not now and never have been a bare naked lady. <laughs> <laughs> either either for real or a member of the group because not, not they're really the young guys. Guy. I, I remember when they started. No, no, no. no Rush was my high school band. Okay. okay, I'm that old. Um, <laughs> hi, my name's Ed Greenwood. I'm a mild-mannered Canadian library worker, um, and I am a writer and game designer, best known for creating a little something called the Forgotten Realms when I was six. I am now 60. Woo. So just a 54-year-old product that's uh, got books, uh, books, 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 more books, more books. Uh, video games, video, ga- yeah, excellent video games, excellent games, very uh, more books, and uh, a bunch of minis that I keep spending more and more money on. I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Various particular characters that are hard to find that I keep. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, that's not what I, I hit. see. Don't... Two scimitars. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the official Drizzt from Rob Partha from eons ago. Eons ago, yes. One of my prime uh, prize possessions. Is it made from poisonous metals that they? Yeah, can't probably. Awesome. Yes. I, I'm getting a little sick having touched it, actually. <laughs> well, well, okay. In Roll Parthas' defense, they came up with their own alloy that was not lead in an attempt to be safer than lead soldiers. I have no idea what that alloy is. Uh, mercury. <laughs> <laughs> they, they make fantastic miniatures, though. I'll give them that. I love their minis yeah. still to this day. Well... I guess speaking of minis, Ed, you created Forgotten Realms 54 years ago, uh, but why? Um, why would you do Let's go back to your childhood, 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 childhood. Um, okay. Um, I grew up in Dawn Mills. My mom died when I was six. I was raised by maiden aunts and uh, grandmas who were the salt of the earth and taught me all sorts of cool things. But one of the things they weren't was into fantasy. My father, however, was, and he had a den f- crammed full of books with homemade bookshelves in it. And like all dens that are made by guys who collect books, he built the shelves to fit the books. Wow. So everything was out of order. It was in order by size. And he collected everything. And I used to embarrass the um, <clears throat> out of him by rushing upstairs during one of his dinner parties when the house was full of five-star generals and other people who were about to defeat the Russians coming at us over the pole. And I'd wave Owl Hoot Trail. She was staked out nude in the sun to die. <laughs> or, <laughs> or the nude said no. 
I spent <laughs> 20 years searching for the nude said yes and never found it. Anyway, uh, all of these pulp paperbacks, I would rush upstairs and wave at my dad. And I'd say, Dad, Dad, this was great. And he'd go, uh, uh, great, great, son. Yeah, that's great. Great to hear. Yeah, where's the next one? Oh, well, son, the... the the author died in uh, 1937, so if you want any more, you're going to have to write him yourself. Oh, okay. And I'd rush downstairs to the den, and I'd pull a brown paper bag that had been ironed flat and slit by, um, slid out flat from bag form to a, a sheet form by one of my aunts, because that's what you did in the Depression to get paper. You didn't buy paper. Mm -hmm. You took your brown paper bags and you ironed them out flat and you wrote things on them with flat engineer's pencils when you, when you grew up on a farm. Now, usually the things you were, you were writing out were stock prices or how much was bid for this shorthorn or whatever, but we used them to write on. So I would write myself a horrible sequel to whatever it was, a pastiche. <laughs> now, they were, they were absolutely terrible should never have seen the light of day and thankfully didn't. But I was learning how to write by copying styles. Everything from Tolkien, because first edition Lord of the Rings was on the shelf next oh, to wow. The High White Forest by Ralph Allen, a novel of the Battle of the Bulge, because they were exactly the same height in our <laughs> And I don't know if you've ever read The High White Forest, but it has three pages of... Uh, German infiltrators who are going to be sent behind allied lines trying to say the F-bomb and sound like an American because huh. there's a Nazi SS inspector has come to the classroom to see how they're getting on. So all the prize students are trying desperately to say the F-word with an American accent and failing miserably. And when you're like six years old, this is hilariously funny to you. I, I think so, it's um, yeah, Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all through my father's den were fantasy books. Everything. Usually wartime paperbacks or pulp magazines. All the space opera science fiction, but all the early fantasies. Everything. Abraham Merritt, The Moon Pool, The Ship of Ishtar, The Metal Monsters, um... All of the early stuff, and then as Lynn Carter started reprinting all the classic fantasies for Ballantyne, my father bought them all, mm. and I read them all. So I was entertaining myself by coming up with my own new fantasy world, and I would write stuff, and my father would take it to his workplace, Canadian Arsenals or, or NORAD, um, installing radar across Canada sort of thing, and all his co-workers who you gotta you gotta imagine these middle-aged white guys with um real short haircuts and pipes they smoke constantly and they'd say things like oh hey this is pretty good baba have the kid write a sex scene next and my father would say he's five years old <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! Wow! Oh, it, it was great fun. Uh, so, so that I started writing. Um, I, I had this vision. Oh, this is going to sound great. I had this vision. <laughs> no, um, uh, I was I was daydreaming once, and I suddenly, out of nowhere, came this vision of it's nighttime in a snowy wood, a northern wood, mixed forest, 
and gentle Christmas picture postcard snow is falling softly and gently. And you can see all this because there's a, you're looking across a little dell. Behind it is this the deep forest, unbroken trees with the the watching eyes of a thousand critters in amongst the trees, all staring at what's in the foreground. And what's in the foreground is this tiny campfire and a beautiful lady with long silver hair, and I mean silver as in the metal, not as in gray. She's sitting with a, a fur around her shoulders, harping with a little Irish harp. She's just playing harp music. And all the critters are listening. And then out of the trees comes another silver-haired woman who looks enough like the first they could be related. And she's all in plate armor with a fur cloak around her shoulders. That's Dove. And she's coming to join Storm at, at the fireside. And I didn't know who these two people were. I didn't know what, why, what was going on. But I wanted to find out. Because they were beautiful ladies, and I was five, precocious six, and they were beautiful ladies, and I wanted to find out more. So I started writing stories, and The Forgotten Realms was born. And oh. it started with short stories starring a fat, wheezing merchant who's sort of a cross between Nicholas Van Rin from Paul Anderson's Pulsotechnic League science fiction stories, Falstaff from Shakespeare... <laughs> And Guy Glenn Cannon. Um, don't Mark, die. you okay? Don't die. Don't die. <laughs> I know. On excitement. Overcome. <laughs> Overcome with mirth. Yeah. Um, there was a guy called Guy Gilpatrick, and he used to write short stories from the men's magazines in the 50s and 60s about a drunken engineer on a ship called Glenn Cannon who swilled endless um, bottles of Duggan's Dew of Kirkontillic. And <laughs> would outsmart the captain and, and swindle his way around the world, never much leaving the engine room. So I, I took these three characters, put them together, and came up with Mert. And Mert was working his way from port city to port city, one step ahead of the authorities who were going to arrest him. By the end of the book, he had to leave town in a hurry because he had his trade rivals, the other merchants, his new enemies, the people he just swindled in the story, and the authorities getting after him, and he just leave at the end of the short story. I was doing Fawford and Grey Mouser style short stories, like Fritz Lieber. I used to read Fantastic because my father had all his Fantastics piled there from the mm -hmm. very beginning. Mickey Spillane had a story in, I think, issue two or three of Fantastic. Anyway, um, <clears throat> and I would, I would do a short story of Mert, and he would leave town and move to the next port, going south along what became the Sword Coast. Mm. Until he fetched up in Waterdeep. And that's how the realms was born. And wow. you can tell I can talk for hours about anything. So I'll shut up now <laughs> so you can ask me another question. <laughs> we no, no, you can talk just, forever. We're just typing about that. We're like, we can just let him go. Just let him go forever. Yeah, this is amazing. I don't know if our eyes could be any wider. So D&D &D is still 10 years in the future. Okay? Yeah. When I'm writing these. I'm just writing fantasy short stories for my own entertainment. Uh, did you have any idea that you were intentionally playing characters against each other too? Because like you're so young, like you've got these characters are all different, right? They have very different personalities. So when you put mm -hmm. Mert with like Dove mm -hmm. and Illustrial, and like you're like, okay, how the like? Because when you're six, you don't understand that you want to put 
you know, opposites together for conflict. Sure I right? do. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, okay, here's the thing. I'm growing up in Don Mills, okay? Mm. Don Mills is old money and new money. Old money is across the valley in the bridal path. Mm-hmm. New money is all around me. And I have to go to church. We all go to church. We all go to a united church. Um, I sing in the choir. So I see all these people around me. And I see them at their best behavior in church as part of the congregation. And I see them making money at their worst behavior and indulging their eccentricities because they're new money. They're Mm -hmm. all incredibly wealthy. And most of them are white guys, but not because Canada's branch plants for all of its industries are located in Toronto if they're operating in English. So families are sent, whether it's Siemens or whatever, whatever the company is, they're sent to a mansion that the company owns in Don Mills with their families to be here for two years and they get posted somewhere else and they bring in a new guy. So the real United Nations, as my father used to say, is not the building in New York. It's right here because people from all over the world are – and we had – I was seeing this culture clash, and because my mom died when she did, and my father occasionally went to swingers parties, and he could pack my two younger sisters off to um, be a sleepover, Mm -hmm. and he was still stuck with me. So there I would be in my gray flannels and my sports blazer with a unicorn embroidered on the breast. And it had two patch pockets because it was in the 1960s, and there was a paperback book stuffed into each one of them. And my father would come up to the door, and he was just, we always just walked because it was Don Mills. We walked through the pleasant summer evening night, and he knocked on the door, and some guy with a little goatee beard and a hairy chest and a pirate silk shirt open to the waist with a brandy snifter the size of my head in his hand would go, Hey, Bob, glad you could make it. Uh, And point at me. And my father would say, Oh, just find him a chair to sit in the corner. You won't even know he was there. (laughs) And I would sit down and very quietly read books. And after two or three hours of drinking, uh, people do really, really do chase each other with lampshades over their heads. Okay. That's not just, (laughs) Okay, <laughs> they would completely forget I was there, and because these were mansions, they tended to have cathedral windows opening oh. out on beautiful backyards that were landscaped like a golf course and went down to the ravine. So people would find each other out in the back lawn. Mm. <laughs> um, how, how non PG thirteen can I get? <laughs> you, you can, I, yeah, like it's not a podcast isn't for kids. It's just okay, that most good. people on it okay. have kids. <laughs> so imagine a beautiful lady whom I have seen warbling away in the front row of the congregation because the choir loft faced the congregation and mm-hmm. we would lead the anthems in all the, we would and she there she was with her three ropes of pearls and all that stuff in church, being a pillar of society. Hark, hark, harking well into voices singing all over the place. And there I'd be sitting with my book temporarily forgotten because 
she was crawling naked on hands and knees across the lawn. So the the motion detector lights had come on outside, and I could see all this. I was in the darkness, and she was spotlit. And wow. some somewhat shorter guy who was not her husband was grabbing her by the hips and walking along behind her, and she was yelling, Wrong hole! Wrong hole! Wrong hole! <laughs> that would be Saturday night. And then on Sunday... There I'd be in the choir, and she'd open her voice to sing, and I'd be going, Wrong hole! Wrong hole! <laughs> so um, my mind was getting all this input. <laughs> oh, my God. For creating <laughs> characters and putting yeah. all this stuff into stories. So I was seeing the difference between somebody's public face. Oh, yes, we must... You know, I, I think carefully of the welfare of our workers and then seeing the guy drunk as a skunk driving his Rolls Royce up onto the sidewalk to, to smash flat every stop sign all the way down Banbury because Banbury was our arterial street and it mm -hmm. turned into a bit of a racetrack. And to stop that, they put stop signs all the way down it. Well, the people who didn't want the stop signs to be there, and in those days, stop signs were on wooden posts, none of these metal ones. They were four-by-four four wooden posts with stop signs on them. Well, if you swerved up onto the curve, hit the brakes, so you came to a stop with your bumper just against the post, revved your engine, and then floored it, the post would break off at ground level <laughs> as you huh. drove over the stop sign and on down. The so there were certain... Gentlemen, pillars of society, chairman of Imperial Oil and stuff like that, um, who would take great delight in removing the stop signs that shouldn't have been put there in the first place. Wow. <laughs> so, so I would see the difference between the public persona and the private persona. So all of that was going into my stories. Not literally. I'm not putting, you know, Canadian business executives into right. my fantasy short stories, but I'm putting in the hypocrisy. Yeah. I'm putting yeah. in the well, we really should be seen to do the right thing, my dear. So I'm going to push you off the balcony now. <laughs> the Lords of Waterdeep makes so much more sense to yes. me now. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. All those noble families misbehaving. Yeah. I just embellished. And I would, you see, that's the other thing. Because the wealthy people of um, were all around me, like all the Ma Toronto Maple Leafs, they all had the stint of living in my neighborhood. And so did all the equestrian people. So I was seeing, oh, let me tell you just one more story. Perfect <laughs> yeah. example. Uh, one of my friends who was one of the, um, um, my original D&D &D crew, Victor Selby and I, were walking up Banbury and uh, about a block north of my street, um, there was a corner lot that nobody built on. So the guy next door cut the grass. So it has nice flat grass. It's a regular house-sized lot with eight-foot-tall cedar hedges on two corners and streets on the other two corners. And there was a gentleman, Norman Elder, long dead now, um, who was known for antics. So... Um, <laughs> so the play way of putting it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at the time, we this large limousine-like car drifts to a halt... Out gets one of the realtors, and he opens the rear doors and ushers out this very wealthy couple and says, 
As you can see, you have a commanding view down Banbury. This choice lot in the middle of Dawn Mills can be yours for only, and he's just at that stage, when Norman Elder, stark naked, (laughs) stride one of his horses, leaps the cedar hedge, lands in the middle of the lot, spraying them with mud from the horse's (laughs) hooves, going, Yo, it's Tally-ho! And gallops off down Banbury. (laughs) <laughs> we just all laughing because we're teenage kids and this is perfect. And the realtor, without bothering to wipe the mud off himself, silently opens the car door and ushers the couple back into the car. <laughs> <laughs> so there were plenty of things like that. That was my childhood. I grew up watching all of this fun stuff and putting it into fantasy short stories. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> you are. That's just amazing. Wow. <laughs> Sounds way more fun than my upbringing. Not <laughs> well, of course, you're getting the edited good parts version. That's, you know, yeah. You're getting the exciting stuff. And there was lots of exciting stuff. There were people who used to chase each other with swords because they collected swords and they had a mansion. And they get drunk or angry and they chase their, their servants or their family members around with swords and we go this is really cool particularly if they were so drunk they would fall over a railing and pitch forward and fall 10 feet onto the hood of their expensive luxury car with the sword oh, no. <laughs> and that then, that's why at 18 they, i had a, I had a rule whereas when i was drinking there was uh there was no martial arts if i was drinking <laughs> for exactly those kind of reasons and and i also had this cherished memory of one of our Canada's eminent bankers. He was a vice president of one of the four Schedule A banks at the time, Maurice Park or Mo Park. So imagine this guy, he's going bald. He's in his late 60s. He slicked all his hair straight back like some European composer, okay? He's wearing a three-piece suit. He has gold teeth, which are usually clenched around a pipe. And he has a gold watch and chain because that's what bankers did in those days to impress the heck out of you. And we are doing a pageant about the history of the United Church. And he has agreed to appear in drag as one of the the ladies of the church. Hmm. And he's got a ladies' foundation garment, which he's borrowed from some aunt or other. And he's just discovered for the first time that these things do up in the back. <laughs> so one of Canada's eminent bankers stripped to the waist. And, you know, he's in his 60s. So saggy man boobs, gray and white hair. And he's going, hey, hold up. I'll just censor for a bit. Do women ever get these damn things done up? Hey, Eddie, zip me up. Hook me up. Whatever's going on back there, I have to get out. The show must go on. (laughs) So, (laughs) my God. (laughs) So you see and hear things like that, and you have to put them into a story, and then you have to disguise them because these people are alive and real, and can sue the beejeebers out of your dad. It all makes sense now. Everything it just <laughs> my my whole worldview has been shattered. 
or improved. I, here I'm thinking, wow, he's, he's come up with these crazy scenarios. How, how can he possibly do it? Oh, okay. <laughs> life is so much crazier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we used to, for instance, we would get bored as teenagers. And one of the things we wanted to do was go down and explore caves. Well, the closest decent caves were at Rattlesnake Point or Kelso. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, um, oh, now, my that way. involved, yeah, yeah. And we used to get out there as often as we could, but it's a, it was a long bike ride even then from Daw Mills. Okay. A very long bike ride. So, yeah. um, we would compensate most weekends by just going down the storm sewers. Now, this is, um, suicide if it rains. Huh. But if it doesn't rain and you're in the largest sewer, it's just big enough that you can't quite stand up without scraping your back. So we would crawl up the storm sewers. And, of course, there was a giant sewer that came out in Edwards Gardens by St. Bonaventure's. And it went under the Lawrence and Leslie intersection. And then it went up Banbury, getting progressively smaller. And it had air shafts every so often. We'd just go to the next air shaft. and We'd climb up the air shaft. And we'd listen to see, is this an air shaft in the middle of a street that a car could drive over and decapitate us? Or is it just to one side? And if it was just to one side or in a park, we'd lift the lid. Thereby scaring the bejeebers out of some (laughs) nanny who was pushing a stroller with a little kid (laughs) through the park. And... You would look up her dress inadvertently because you were pushing up this manhole. And then she would shriek to hell and leap into the air because the devil was coming for her up out of the ground. And she would say so at the top of her lungs as she sprinted in Olympic sprinting fashion. It was amazing how fast little ladies in black bombazine could run when they have the sufficient. Uh, anyway, uh, so <laughs> you would do things like that. And then you would want to tell someone. And if you told somebody, you would get royally murdered. Unless you could stop one of the make-beliefs and tell them, you know, as they drove down to the gardens for a game. And they would stop the car and say, what did you do this time? And then drive off, presumably to tell their buddies. But, But that didn't have quite the same payoff. And if you told people at school, inevitably somebody told one of the teachers, and you got in royal doo-doo. I mean, we used to do things at school, too. I can remember the time when... uh, one of the teachers we didn't like reported her Volkswagen Beetle stolen. And the cop oh, no. came, he got out of his cop car, and he um, pulled out his notepad, and got out his pen, and he licked his pen, and he started uh, writing. So what seems to be the problem, ma'am? And she goes, well, my car, it's gone. <laughs> okay, um, what color was it, and what make is it? And she goes, well, it's sort of orange. It's a Volkswagen Beetle. He goes, oh, like that one up there? Pointing at the roof of the kindergarten. Because yeah. kindergartens were half height. They were half hunk into the ground. So if you got all the student body together, and there would be some boards like That's amazing. To serve as ramps. <laughs> and I could still recall our teacher coming out and going, uh, 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 uh. Um, I want that. I want that Volkswagen Beetle down in one piece in 10 minutes. And I want it to be upright on its four tires and 
I won't ask any questions. And then he'd wander off to the uh, staff room to get himself a coffee. And we would hastily put the car back where it was supposed to be. And then he'd come out and he'd say, right, now, as punishment, you're all going to learn how to change a tire. And he'd walk over to his car, get all the tools out of the trunk, and say, now, you're going to take turns changing a tire. Your parents will thank me someday. Because we had great teachers. So you would write stuff like that down, and they would come into all your stories. And some of the stories were so far-fetched, they had to be fantasy stories. Oh, my gosh. And the rest, as they say, oh, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's just a good life lesson. I I know a lot of people that would like to learn how to change a tire. (laughs) We had an enriched class. And in that class, he taught us how to do our taxes, change tires, Mm. Um, how you assess somebody as a first dater when they were lying on the ground and you didn't know what had happened. Um, all sorts of useful stuff. Um, somebody ran over a raccoon one morning on, and he picked it up, brought it in and dissected it for us. Oh, wow. It was really cool. Very bloody and gory too, but really cool. <laughs> and we all had great fun. Um, he then saw that we liked it so the next day he went and got a bullseye from a slaughterhouse the eyeball of a bull and he cut into showed us and he pulled out the little gelatin lens and passed it around and we could all peer through the lens and see Hmm. how it made you see better and he said and this is how eyeglasses are made and he says and now our class project is going to be making a telescope and we made a telescope to look at the stars. It was really cool. I mean, see, we had cool teachers, and we had absolutely crazy people around us. And they were new money and old money, so they had the money to indulge their eccentricities. So whatever their weird eccentricity was, they did it. Mm-hmm. And we got to see them. So that all that stuff was fodder for my stories. Yeah. That and just the hypocrisy of suburbia. Right. Yeah. Well, like it. It seems like you almost didn't have a choice but to write it down, right? Like you felt that if you didn't write it down, you like because as a teenager, as a kid, you have to express yourself somehow, right? Yeah. And you, if you felt like yeah. you can't talk to anybody about it, you did, like there's no internet. Obviously, <laughs> it's it's about uh, thirty years away, forty years away, and I, I, you don't even have a typewriter at this point. I guess. Um, I mean, they exist, but you don't have thought- one. No, I have my father's Underwood 8, which, by the way, you can kill somebody with. They're cast iron. They're like mm. boat anchors. Um, uh, he and my, my dad actually had he had a portable typewriter, which I have now, which is a wooden suitcase for the 1930s in which they've just taken the business guts of a typewriter, just that little fan of keys and installed it in a wooden frame and built canvas around it and put metal corner caps on it and and put a, a grip handle on it. It's a suitcase, a tiny little suitcase. So he had a little one, and he soon got me my own typewriters because he didn't want me ruining his any further. But mm. yeah, I, I turned over the realms on an Underwood 8. The T was gone on my thingy, so I would hand write in all the T's. And as Jeff Grubb said, it looked like a little graveyard with all these crosses. <laughs> so did you just but like yes. add a space everywhere there was a T and just like then manually afterwards or? Oh, no, I just... typed the T. Oh, but I see. You see the, the whole key was bent and broken. So it would it would the carriage would move with a space. 
and afterwards I'd have to go in and hand draw them. It actually struck the T. It right. just didn't hit, make it to the page because there's a little narrow gate there that each key has to come in between the gate, yes. and the gate holds the 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 ink-stained cloth roll there. Right. So you hit it, and and the really good typewriters were red and black, so you could do red letter. You know, when you were typing the Word of God or something like that, it could be <laughs> red letter, and everything else was black. You know, so it had to hit at the right height and everything, and this thing would just hit the side of the frame and never right. just bounce <laughs> off. You know? Yeah, yeah. These technical difficulties. We have. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you can just dictate to your phone, and it'll do it all for you. But it'll get every other word wrong. If I have a phone like that, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Okay, that's true. Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm old school. Um, I did at once have to spend um, a frustrating day trying to uh, train Dragon. Um, there were three, there were four dragons. One dragon was a United Air Force missile. The Nakamichi dragon was this really cool um, piece of audio equipment. The Dragon magazine, which I wrote for and then became contributing editor of. And then there was this dragon speech software, which you had to spend days training. Yeah. <laughs> or you would say something simple like, take a message. And it would turn it into Tamiliabarg. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd go, no, not Tamiliabarg. And it would go, yes, Tamiliabarg was right. <laughs> and it would memorize that. And it would... <laughs> oh, By that's the way, this, the... Is, this is how science and technology has advanced for centuries, gentlemen. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the this is the problem the new generation uh, has with what's uh, autocorrect on our phones. And uh, oh yes, and uh, we say that we're ducking when we don't mean that we're ducking quite often. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I quail thought of what it turns it into. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry. Um, oh. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I get the problem. Yeah. So, um, I presume somewhere you had a script for the questions. Oh, we, we have a whole bunch. We have a whole bunch. I mean, I, awesome. I didn't want to necessarily just bombard you with questions either. Uh, <laughs> because I know, I know, <laughs> I know you're a well-spoken gentleman. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, well, this, this, this stuff. So, like, I know Mark. Mark's Mark's a huge, huge fan. So, I know Mark would like to ask you something. Massive fan. Um. So, you're in a. You're Why in. Could you be a. Put <laughs> the guy right. off his stroke before he starts. You've been, you've been publishing and writing and working in libraries for years. So, what's the best fantasy novel? series or individual book that we've likely never heard of mm. i okay i hate choosing bests they're very subjective um and i also don't know what people have heard of okay but for my money up there in quality are guy gavriel k's fantasy books mm. particularly um a song for a bond and to ghana um Canadian fantasy author, da 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 da. Um, John Belair's The Face and the Frost, which is a funny book and also horror scary. By the way, his kids' book, The House with a Clock in Its Walls, not the crappy movie, but the book, well, is one of the scariest books you will ever read. 
Okay. Um, uh, the Riddle Master of Head trilogy by um, Patricia McKillop. Uh, the Hero in the Crown and the Blue Sword by Robin McKinley. Uh, a Night in the Lonesome October by Roger Zelazny, and of course, all of the Amber books. Right. Um, and I'm now getting into stuff you should have heard of, like Terry Pratchett and all of oh, Discworld. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, but also Lord Dunsany, all of his short stories of the gods of Pagana, and the Dreamlands, which is where Lovecraft got his start. Mm-hmm. He started by writing pastiches of Dunsany's Dreamlands. And the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath right. is this novel with no chapters. The one that just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on uh, is a Dunsany um, hmm. pastiche. Uh, there are all sorts of great fantasy um, books out there, and it all depends on what you like. Um, there are lots of even more short stories that are hidden away. Um, Ursula Le Guin did a marvelous Ursi one. On the naming of names, which is a great short story in the in the Ursi's um, sequence, there are all sorts of really cool short stories. Um, Stephen Donaldson did uh, the Daughter of Regals novella, which is is uh, should not be missed. Um, Stephen Bruce, I can go on and on for hours, <laughs> guys. I could fill. No, no, please do. <laughs> we could we could listen for hours. Yeah. Um, actually, that that uh, makes me think. Uh, so do you think short stories have kind of like fallen to the wayside in recent years because of the riot? Like novels have become ubiquitous in society. Like you can go to just about any store, like even a corner store, and pick up a novel, basically. Um, and people, and I mean, one of the nice things is that more people read in North America now than ever in history. Uh, but people tend to not read, I guess, as deeply. Okay, but okay. <clears throat> 20 years ago, I would have agreed with you 100%. The short story was dying in our genres anyway. But it's come back. Um, it is It is now the way to get noticed within the field for literary awards and so on. There are online magazines like Lightspeed and Apex and so on. Um they give you short stories, you know, that that's the steady diet sort of thing. And um, one man, Tom Doherty, who is Tor Books. I mean, Tor Books has been bought by Macmillan and Tom's retiring and so on. But he missed the ace doubles, which of I was going to say of his youth, but he was publishing the ace doubles. OK, back <laughs> then. OK, so he misses novellas and the market for novellas. So Tor.com was his website, which, by the way, publishes original short stories and chapter excerpts from their novels they're going to put out. But he also established, after a few years, Tor.com as a literary imprint. And it exists just to publish novellas, nothing else. And sometimes you can buy these novellas as slender hardcovers or slender mass market or trade paperbacks, you know, oversized but really thin paperbacks. So he's... Because he loved those and didn't see them in the market anymore, he built or rebuilt the market for them. So they're mm-hmm. all coming back. And and there are lots of great short stories. Matt Hughes publishes them. Jim Webster has done some Jack Vance stuff. Yeah, that's, that's another book you shouldn't, shouldn't miss. If you like Jack Vance's Dying Earth, and now that Jack is no longer with us and can't write any more of them, there's a guy called Jim Webster, and you can buy a book called Swords for a Dead Lady from Amazon and then it has a bunch of sequels and they're very consciously deliberately in the style of Jack Vance's 
you know, sardonic um, fantasies. Mm. Oh, I, I fear it may be necessary to kill you now. Really? That would be a pity. And after I haven't finished my tea yet. You know, <laughs> <laughs> books like that, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I highly recommend um, all those sorts of guys. There are, I, and I have like 200,000 books around me. Um, I enjoy reading both old classics like Randall Garrett's old Lord Darcy mysteries and um, new stuff that, that whatever comes down the pike. I'm, I'm surrounded by piles of new books that I have to get to. Um, ben Aronovich's latest one, False Value, is sitting there right on top of a, uh, a murder mystery, a locked room murder mystery that somebody unearthed from the 1930s, which I, I intend to enjoy because, hey, you know, back then, um, men are men and women are women. And, you know, and so there's all of that right, yeah, overblow yeah. in writing where yeah. you just read it and go, oh, my God. Did you even think women were the same species as us? You know, as you read, but but then then they they pull something really cool in the middle of the book, and you realize, hey, the woman's been controlling this all along. Cool. Anyway, so um um yeah, there are tons of books, and there are tons of books out there. There are there are always um Corling, they met the dragon, tea with the black dragon, the iron dragon's daughter by Michael Swanwick. There are all these books that you should read before you die. <laughs> Caesar, this man wishes to die rich, and so he shall. Give him the sack of gold to hold and then strangle him. <laughs> I don't even know how to interject. Like I don't wanna I don't wanna I don't wanna stop you. Um does that so does that mean you're more of like a paper? Like you you don't do ebooks or anything like that? I have a Kindle given to me that was given to me by Aaron Evans sitting about two feet away. Um, it's loaded with books. I keep getting these new books and putting it on that. Um, and then I swipe to turn the page and I'm 148 pages later. Um, okay. <laughs> and I go expletive expletive. <laughs> and I turn around and reach for the good old fashioned print book that is right here. And obeys me. <laughs> <laughs> and smells so good. Yes. Yeah. And do smell I, I don't lick the pages anymore, but, you know. Because <laughs> I know where most of them have been. But <laughs> Sir, this novel's been flagged. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, there are books all around me. I'm in a cave of books as I speak to you. Well, we can see some of them. Yeah, yeah, except this red thing here. This red thing here is one of those cheap plastic totes, and it's brimful of the DVDs I haven't filed yet. Oh, okay. There are, there are three shipping containers, full-size shipping containers out in the yard. Two shorties and one long one, and they're, they're full, which is how I can still move around my house. Wow. <laughs> And why the the second floor hasn't fallen through onto the ground floor. <laughs> My meager like three bookshelves feels like like nothing now. But uh... no, you are way ahead of me. You have downsized. You are lean and spare. You are nimble and agile in life. You, sir, can turn on a dime. <laughs> 
and voyage forth into a new career without having a piano strapped to your ass like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's those moments where you want to go find a book and find a specific passage and you realize you've given it away like five years mm. earlier. Yes. Yeah. yeah. When you give away a book, it is always gone for good. Yeah. But think of it, sir. If if you had to change house, you could walk along the shoulder of the 401 and get there. I would cause a traffic jam on the shoulder of the 401 <laughs> because I'd be dragging 22 pianos strapped to my ass. I would be very <laughs> slow. <laughs> they would I, they would log my progress in years. Or has he made it to Guelph yet? <laughs> <laughs> Has he has he gone from one end of six to the other end of six? <laughs> I suspect there are many a nerd out there who would be willing to help uh, move a couple shipping containers uh, full of Ed Greenwood's books to wherever so, wherever he asked. So they say, right. <laughs> and then they would arrive. Just need to you just need to buy a drop. case of beer and a couple of pizzas. <laughs> that's how you get I people did to help. That. When I moved out here, I did that. And then I had to phone the rifty, thrifty, whatever they were, rental company, and say, this van you lent me, I think the axle's broken. <laughs> and they said, well, what did you put in it? I said, my books. And they go, well, it's only supposed to carry five tons or eight tons or whatever it is. And I said, yeah, you." the guy who rented it to me said, don't stack boxes of books above waist high. I didn't. And they go, well, get it back to us. So there I drove along the 401. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. And left it in their yard. <laughs> well, the thing, about, the thing about stacking books back together is what people don't realize that books are made of trees. And when you put enough books back together, you just, you're just carrying logs again. That's right. right. <laughs> you're just carrying lumber. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes, and you are lumbered with your books. Yes. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, and and then uh, then there's all the game stuff in the basement. Oh, wow. That probably puts my collection to absolute and complete shame. That, that, I have, that, that, it, I have it's not one how solid bookcase behind me, but I have two rooms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm jealous. I'd love to see it. <laughs> Well, um, <laughs> the, yeah, that's the stuff that's out. There's a there's more boxed in the trailer, because you know, guess what? When you start playing real games, you take games like Stock Ticker and say, "Yeah, I don't think I need to put this on the shelf anymore. <laughs> I'm never gonna play it again. I will be too busy playing Lords of Waterdeep or something, you know, like like eh, anyway." Mm -hmm. All, mm. all my copies of Risk haven't been touched in over 10 years. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. That's because um, you want to keep your friends. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like it when I just hide out in uh, Australia. 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 <laughs> you, you could play D&D &D Monopoly. You know, that's fun. I, it's on my Amazon wish list. And my oh, and, and there's an old out-of-print game called KGB. And if you're ever stuck at a cottage with a copy of Clue by Parker Brothers and you think you're going to lose your mind if Curdle Mustard in the conservatory with the lead pipe ever crosses your mind again, you, you start playing KGB. It's very simple. In every room on the board, you put a monitor. And a monitor is just one of those little brads 
and two pieces of cardboard. And and you on the on one piece of cardboard which you stick the brad through to join it to the other, you put an arrow. And it's like turning the sensors on or off. One of you is the spy, the KGB spy. All the rest of you are trying to catch the KGB spy. You go all over the board. Visit, everybody has to visit every room. Everybody has to pick up the monitor and pretend to turn it off. Only the spy can really turn it off. The spy has to turn three of them off and then get off the board in the same little weird side thing that you get off the board in Clue. Hmm. Oh, this is if cool. Everybody's had enough beer and pretzels, yeah. If everybody's had enough beer and pretzels, you can play KGB with a Clue board, and it's actually fun. Hmm. And you will make enemies for life of your parents and aunties and so on if you play it with them. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a not dissimilar game. It's more of a social game and less of a board game, though, called The Resistance uh, that will ruin marriages. <laughs> or so I've been told as uh, my friend's wife has threatened to divorce him if he was really the spy. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, but that's, that, uh, that's that's one of those times where you just sort of eat crow and fold your tents and yeah. <laughs> Unless, of course, you want to be out of the marriage, but I mean, <laughs> in which case, well played, well played. But <laughs> well, it's what the spy would do: is that they would uh, they would pretend not to be the spy and then uh, yeah, continue but, on know, the marriage anyway. Gamers get that. That's true. So, spouses usually don't. <laughs> they don't have the same values system. It's true. <laughs> true enough. Yeah, my That's my girlfriend just colors in her D and D sheet when uh, when we play. <laughs> she doesn't. She doesn't actually roll. She's the one who rolling dice, so she's happy to just take markers and color in the sheet. Well, actually, when we play the Home Realms campaign, we almost never roll dice. We because we have three or four hours of role playing in character. We just do intrigue. We almost never fight monsters. Well, I think people are starting to see with the rise of uh, especially Twitch streaming of board games, like uh, there's games like Critical Role. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's very, very popular. Mm -hmm. And I think it was two weeks ago. I don't think they rolled a single like they didn't have combat at all. Mm -hmm. And they barely even rolled dice. And to them, it's I mean, they're actors. It's great. It works for them. But there's Mm -hmm. people who see that and go, what are they doing? Like they're playing wrong. Well, every like I play with uh, two of these guys here. I'm their DM, and what we've had combat every game so far, I think, but that's because they're only they're new to the system. Mm. But the role playing elements, I hardly have them roll at all. Mm-hmm. Sure, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. There's so many ways of playing D and I mean, early D and uh, okay, Gen Con eight, <laughs> okay, back then it was sand tables. Guys had actual slide rules. Hmm. They would take, they would bring to the table a burst circle, which they'd taken a coat hanger and laboriously bent it around a hubcap wow. to get around thing and go, okay, the fireball goes off and boom, everything in here is decimated. And sometimes they would have a party caller and they would play D&D like a football game with everybody going into the huddle. Okay, <laughs> now... The thief, you go around here, and, and the cleric, you cast a uh, blade barrier there, and, and and okay, got it on my mark, go. So they would they would play the game like that, and there were other people who were rules lawyers, and they were they really wanted to win, 
and they were trying to beat the DM. And then there were dungeon masters whose idea of D and D was to sadistically and creatively kill off every player character. <laughs> that would and be that me. was that was D and D. I no. thought that was you. <laughs> yeah, it, ma- it all makes sense. <laughs> it does make sense now. I'm 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 a bit of I'm a bit of a Chris Perkins where right? I'm going to torture them with their backstory and then uh, finish them at the worst possible moment. Uh, Chris is a softy. That's his persona. Chris and I are buds. He, underneath, yes, he'll still kill you because that's his job when the cameras are on. Yes. No, no. But you see, the the thing about that is he has another job that you don't see, which is him playtesting stuff endlessly. So you have to do it umpteen different ways. Okay, what if there are two dragon men in Chamber 3? What if Strahd knows about you? in chamber seven let's try it that way and then you play it through again and so there are times when he can't kill you he has to keep you alive time after time after time and boy does it gnaw at him no (laughs) (laughs) but but uh but enough of talking shop um Um, I don't even know. I don't know how to segue. That's that's what's happening. <laughs> it's I don't your first to... time hosting, man. It's, it's, it's I know, but I also don't know how to segue at it because like, we get we got on a tangent, um, which is great. Like I'm this is. Oh, it's very easy. You do this. You go. <laughs> OK, now we're back on the road. Like, and then you ask your next. Like, we did that. <laughs> we did that. Um, actually, well, why don't I ask you then about um, <clears throat> I know you post on Twitter a lot. And because I bug you on Twitter a lot. Um, <laughs> and you post about Storm Talons, which is maybe, I mean, there's lots of people who know about the Forgotten Realms. Um, but if people don't follow you on Twitter, maybe they haven't heard of it because it, it's fairly new to me. Um, and I, I read a lot of the, the fiction you put up about it. But could you explain what Storm Talons is? Sure. Okay, when I'm not working on the realms, I've been working on the realms every day of my life for 50 uh, uh, years, uh, um, I get ideas for other things, like a space opera setting, like a steampunk setting um, that I can't, stuff that I can't put in the realms. So I jot them down. Computers are wonderful. I no longer have to jot them down on little scraps of paper, which I'll promptly lose in the boxes that are now in those three shipping containers full of... uh, I can now type them into a file and put them on a computer. So I had about 30 different settings all saved up. And I started this publishing company called the Ed Greenwood Group. I didn't come up with the name. Um, My business partners convinced me that they needed to capitalize on my name. And It went bust because, like most publishing companies, we were undercapitalized. Like most companies everywhere in the world, we were undercapitalized. One of the 30-plus settings that I wanted to get into was Storm Talons. Storm Talons is lunch bucket fantasy, low fantasy as opposed to high fantasy, low magic as opposed to high magic. Now, the magic we saw in the early Storm Talons books was the highest magic there is. But here's the difference. The whole point of the realms was everybody has magic. Mm-hmm. You can't, um, you can't uh, count on the shoeshine boy in down the alley not having magic. So if you want to bully him or 
slaughter him because you're a big, bold adventurer and you need three experience points, don't because he could turn around and blow you away with a meteor swarm because that's the realms. Well, in Storm Talons, you have a fantasy world and you have one mighty arch wizard called the Hyrofar. And if you work what in D&D terms would be arcane magic, okay? So if you're a wizard or a sorcerer and you work a spell and you do it in public, he has hit teams everywhere, spies and hit teams. And one of them shows up and says, hi, would you like to work for the Hyrofar? If you refuse, they kill you on the spot. Hmm. So everybody works for the Hyrofar or they don't use magic at all. With the exception of priests, um, again, in contrast to the realms where there's a giant pantheon of deities, there are only six deities. Well, actually, there are seven. But, <laughs> okay, leaving aside the <laughs> forgotten gods that are cults and so on, there are six, and they're called the six. And the priests of the six have their own uh, kingdom. And... Their kingdom is sort of Mennonite, if you wanted to put it in real world terms. Mm -hmm. It is the breadbasket of the world. It makes all the crops and it keeps everybody as simple farmers, or else that's Relagor. That's one country. Mm -hmm. um, the Hyrofar conquered a whole bunch of warring city states and welded them together into a giant country called Skelant. And it faces Relagor on one continent with a little cauldron of mountains in between and in the middle of this are all these little forest holds very much like canada's uh, cottage country and <laughs> um and a pirate port called tantalus in the middle and then there's a whole bunch of continents across that have all the fun so that's storm talents it's a giant fantasy world bigger than the realms and that's the other thing the storm talents are mists Monsters live in the mists. Elves oh. can go into the mists and come out, find their way out again. Everybody else who goes into the mists takes it lost forever, never seen again. Or if they are seen again, they come stumbling out insane and transformed, sometimes into monsters that have to be slaughtered on sight. And the storm talons, the mists, they recede and advance on their own, and you have no control over them. Hmm. That's the world of storm talons. And I started doing a whole bunch of Storm Talons novels. I wrote one, and then I got a bunch of friends of mine, some of whom you might remember if you were into D&D &D novels and so on, and, and some others like Chris Jackson, um, who, who writes pirate fantasies. And they, they wrote novels, and then the whole thing ran out of steam. So when it ran out of steam, I gave everybody the rights to their novels back, all their fiction back. And... Um, it's all in limbo now, and Storm Talents is in limbo. Um, well, Tag is wound up legally. So hmm. Storm Talents may rise again, but that's that's why you don't see any more tweets about it at the moment, because, oh, I have to wind up the affairs of the company. So ah, okay. every all the IPs of the company just have to go away and fall silent for a bit. Well, this is all taken care of because there's a big, long legal procedure. And during the for that procedure the company has to be moribund it can't be operating hmm. right uh, it has no assets but it can't be operating right. either so storm talents goes away 
But it is some, but it's something you'd like to get back to at some point. Oh yeah, I, I I've got the first novel which ends on a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I gotta put it back out there. Um and and um oh yeah, it, the whole thing is great fun, and I'd love to do more storytellings in the future. I do other things than the realms. I just and and these days, most of my other things are for friends of mine who are in the industry. We're doing a Kickstarter for something, either a D20 or a 5e compa- compatible. Right now, I'm busy writing Rocket Age, which is a science fiction game that Cubicle 7 used to publish. Its rights went back to its creator, Ken Spencer, and he's publishing Rocket Age. And so I'm doing an adventure for it called Bold Brigands of the Belt. And that's what I've been working on for the past couple months. Before that, I was working with a a great Canadian guy called Andrew Volkoskis, who does this absolutely beautiful Norse role-playing game called Fate of the Norns. And I wrote a novel for him called The One-Eyed King. Um, Little known fact, real history, long before Dublin was called Dublin, it was conquered by the Vikings. Hmm. And it was a Viking city for a couple of years till they got pushed out. And that's what he's modeling in his in his fantasy game. When this one-eyed king, and he's one-eyed because as a teenager, he performed a blot or sacrifice to Odin. Odin mm. has one eye. So he plucked out his own eye, or one of his own eyes, and sacrificed it to the god and said, I, I'm yours. So he's the one-eyed king. Mm-hmm. So I, I had great fun writing a novel. So I'm, I'm doing all sorts of other things for other people outside the realms, which makes me appreciate the realms all the more because I get to play outside it. I get the contrast of doing other things. And I get to play with a lot of my friends at gaming, you know, like do something creative. There's unfortunately most of the things I'm doing I can't talk about. Um, right. You've probably NDAs and so on. You've probably seen the uh, Alex Cammer just revealed that he and I have done the Border Kingdoms, and yeah. that'll be out in a few days. Um, I can't talk about a lot of the other things I'm working on right now, but I am working on other things right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is exciting. <laughs> At least we know there's more to look forward to. There is always more to look forward to. I should have said that in the phone sex voice, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were going to bring it up near the end, but uh, do you want to talk about the Border Kingdoms now? There's, sure. Um, because I'm excited about it. Because I lo- anything Forgotten Realms. See how effortlessly I'm, that segue was. That was well. That effortless. was that was Ooh. tossed up for me. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming into his own. <laughs> David's growing up. It's my first day. <laughs> okay, so for next podcast, you guys yeah. have to get him a complete set of files so he can file his teeth into points while he's on air. <laughs> that always disconcerts the guests. Anyway, hey, what's uh, still around here? <laughs> so, the Border Kingdoms. Yeah. Um, so, for those of you who remember the realms like the back of your hand, at the east end of Kalamshan, there is a volcanic sulfurous inland sea called the Lake of Steam. And the Lake mm-hmm. of Steam has a southern coast. And occupying that southern coast, all the way up to the land rise where the Shar starts, is the Border Kingdoms. And the Border Kingdoms have been have been around for four or five centuries. And 
the border kingdoms are this nice, verdant little pasture land. So, I guess I guess none of you guys are old enough to remember what Southern Ontario was like before we put houses all over it. Uh, there I were woodlots in my, in my area because I'm near Binbrook, okay. and it, I, where I live is now suburbs. But growing up, everybody called this the Boons. But all my friends are farm boys, and I would say they live Got in the Boons. So okay, yeah. Well, okay. R- remember those eras where there were there were little streams everywhere, tiny mm-hmm. little ponds, woodlots. Farmers had enough extra land that they left woodlots everywhere, and overgrown fen- uh, hedges, stump fences, and stuff. Okay, so the border kingdoms is like that, and it has endless dirt lanes winding everywhere. And adventurers come along from somewhere else in the realms. And they pick a fight with <laughs> this fat toad on a throne in front of them, who is ruling three three muddy sheep pastures and calling it the Grand Duchy of Me. <laughs> <laughs> so they say, you've lived too long, old man. And he goes, ha ha, just a minute. Just, just hold what you're doing. And he reaches under the throne to get out the wand that will blast them. And they chop his head off before you can get it out. And then they rule the Grand Duchy and they call it, oh, we are the company of the ready sword. So let, let, let us call this the realm of the ready sword. Now, you can throw a rock across the realm of the ready sword. Or you could then. You can't anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. And it got really big before it didn't exist. But that took several generations. But the original Realm of the Ready Sword, you could throw a rock across it. But it was the Grand Realm of the Ready Sword. So adventurers have been doing this for centuries, piling on top of each other, creating these little vest pocket kingdoms, which are really just glorified farms. If they're lucky, they get a market town to take over. Then they really strut their stuff. So that's the Border Kingdoms. And Alex Kammer runs this great convention in Madison, Wisconsin, where he lives, um, called GameholeCon. And if you want to see a, a D&D collection, get yourself to GameholeCon some year and to, get to tour the GameHole. Well, <laughs> every day he posts a new module or a new supplement from Pat previous editions on his Twitter so if you go on his Twitter, which I, I don't have yeah. here, but it's really neat to see because he, he's basically just going the history because he's got one of everything, it seems. GHC and, just, and tacos. GHC and tacos. Oh, that's his, his Twitter. Twitter. Okay. Handle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, he went into a, a sort of a partnership or, or um, sponsored Adventures League stuff at GameholeCon. And they unofficially gave him, just like they gave Eric Menji and some of his guys the Moonshades to play with, they gave Alex the Border Kingdoms to play with. And all of the guys who are his crew and put on the convention with him, great convention guys, um, they all wrote Adventures League Adventures. And I wrote some as you know, guesting with, with, with Alex. Alex and I wrote some together. And then he said, you know, I'd really like to know more about the Border Kingdom so we could, like, do another season of adventures for the for – the... and I said, oh, I'll write up the Border Kingdoms for you. Well, little did Alex know that I had been trying to write up the Border Kingdoms 
in Polyhedron magazine until it died under me. And then I tried to sneak some of it into um, Ruling the Realms or Running the Realms, which ended up with a different title, um, the third edition source book. And I kept running out of space. So I said, <laughs> okay, I'm going to finish it this time. So I did the entire alphabetical catalog of the realms and sent it off to him, like 100-odd pages. And he went, wow. And then published it, put it up on DM Skill. And now we want to do it properly. So we're redoing it with character backgrounds and all that lovely five edition, five E edition stuff. New art, cool stuff, da 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 blah blah. Mm. And now, yeah, and we're not finished. We may do other stuff. Cool. <laughs> we we can only hope. As fans, we can only hope. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yes. Speaking I of the wanted, art, I want to cover the entire realms. And TSR interrupted me, and now Wizards of the Coast has interrupted me. I haven't finished carpet bombing the globe yet. <laughs> <laughs> Typical bureaucracy, right? Getting in the way of progress. Oh, gosh, yes. I have so much to explore. Um, and your artist on that is the same guy who's done a bunch of great maps for the realms, as well as other places. Like, he did a map for Skull Kickers. Uh, which Jim Zub wrote, and that's one of my favorite comics. Like his maps are just beautiful, and they're featured in a lot of the products. Mike Schley. Mike Schley. Yeah, Mike Schley. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful maps. And you guys are doing an all new map in that for the Border Kingdoms. Yes. I'm certainly excited about because there's a great map available right now, but it's as you know, dating the realms. It's like 150 years old. Yes. Um. Yeah. So maybe we'll see a couple new realms in there. Oh yeah, and, uh, or, or or fiefdoms or, or duchies or we should do. I I I took that original um, map of mine and I blew it up to bed sheet size, <laughs> and then I drew in all the additions, and then I photocopied them on a tiny little photocopier, and scanned all the pieces and said, "Here, put these all together, and they look like this." <laughs> because... <laughs> so yeah, there should be new stuff in there. I, awesome. I hope there's new stuff in there. I will be <laughs> gravely disappointed if there isn't new stuff in there. Anyway, yeah. Mm -hmm. <sighs> <laughs> I can't, man. I'm in awe. I'm just in awe. This is uh, it's too cool. Um, I'm just a normal gamer. <laughs> I just refuse to go away. It's easy. It's easy for you to say that. <laughs> All right, so. What advice would you give for world builders? Like I'm currently running my own setting that is in its very, very infancy. It's like the third or fourth world I've started on. And what advice would you give to those of us who are starting out on their own worlds? Okay. First, take everything I say with a big heaping handful of salt because we're all different. Okay. What works for me might not work for you. But I would begin the world building by asking you, the world builder, a question. What are you world building this for? Do you want to create 100 novels? Do you want a long-running fantasy campaign? Or do you just need a kick-ass fantasy short story and you need the king to be evil, the vizier to be good, and 16 princesses who can poly him over into lizards for the story? Yeah, so I like the third is, one. 
Okay. Well, I mean, there isn't a right answer to that, but you have to right. answer that question because that determines how much detail and time you have to put into this. Like, are you just taking care of the needs of that story, or does it is it going to have be the cradle of a hundred stories or D and D play for five, six, ten, fifty years? Because if you need it to be the cradle of something, then everything has to make sense. Where the food comes from, where the dung goes to after they've eaten the food, um, mm. who's fighting who and why. Um, if there are caravans or merchants walking around, then there's a shortage of something somewhere and there's a surplus of something somewhere else. Work out what produces things. What is it going with? Like, what other races other than your main protagonist race? Most of us choose humans because it's a lot easier than saying the Zuglug ooble down the... And then you go, you don't know what a Zuglug is, so I'll stop and lecture you. You know, So you don't want info dumps, so most of us choose things that are familiar. The same reason why the guy who's writing the latest James Bond movie doesn't have to explain to you what a phone is or a speedboat, or a machine gun. They just use them. Okay, so let's assume you, you know what human is and the human main characters. You have to decide, are we going to have any ethnic battles, divisions, friction? Um, is there going to be gender-based anything? Do I care? What is, what is the key focus and um, mood the look of this world. What do I want to emphasize? Okay, how would they end up looking that way? Um, if it's a society in which they all drink tea, why? Why do they all drink tea? And how does that affect them? And you can take just one little strand, and the little strand can be there's only one iron sword on the whole GD continent, and this guy has it. <laughs> okay. Or you can go from the, do I want religion in this at all are the gods going to be walking the stage are their priests going to be telling everybody else how to live or are they, are they just going to be ancient legends or the, the the tavern master says no 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 don't sit there son you must sit facing west remember the prophecy and you go oh yeah and you turn, the, you turn your stool around so you're facing west. And that could be the sum total of religion in your setting if you want it to be. You have to make all these decisions as to – but they all flow from your needs at hand. And your needs at hand are what do I want to tell in this story? What do I want to have? If, if I'm playing D&D and my group meets in a tavern, why? Is that where everybody goes to eat, get drunk? Is the tavern on a trade route? You see, you can just build outward from there without overwhelming yourself with, I have to work out the history of the empires. I have to go from when the planet cooled. No, no, you just go, why are they <laughs> sitting in a tavern? Is a tavern on a trade road? Okay, where does the trade road go to? Are they in a kingdom? Okay, like if they start a brawl in the tavern, who will come in to A, clean up, and B, restore order? Are there going to be soldiers? Is there a kingdom so that all the soldiers are in uniform and are they sent by somebody? Are there laws? And you could just build out from there. But if you try and do it all at once, it's just like, oh, my brain hurts. This is just like the real world. How the hell is this escapism already? You know, <laughs> but 
But you don't have to do that. You could just build it out from what you need to do. And that's actually how I started the realms because I was just telling stories. There was no D&D. But I could read all these fantasy classics and crap, pulp crap as well. And I could see examples of good and bad world building and what worked and what didn't work around me and decide what to pick from. You know, oh, I can do that. Oh, it doesn't matter if you keep everybody's focus on the, the politics. Well, okay, um, to use a Game of Thrones, can I use a, a four-letter naughty word in this podcast? Oh, of course. Okay, yeah. so I'm quoting, <laughs> I'm quoting Game of Thrones. Do you remember that scene in King's Landing early on where Tyrion and Varys are at the walls? And he said, Tyrion is saying that he was put in charge of the, uh, the sewers, Casterly Rock, and all the shit flowed to the sea. Mm. Okay. He, underneath, you need to know how all these things work. I always need to know how food gets into a city. And when you go to the bathroom... Where does it go? Are there sewers? Do you shit into a bucket and throw it in the street? Or do you go down the back stairs at two in the morning, pay a copper to have it dumped in the night soul wagon? This I is think- handy because at some point, the player characters have to escape from the city. So you get into the night soil under the wagon and no guard is going to search to the bottom of the pile. <laughs> You just hope you don't suffocate before you get out. <laughs> mm-hmm. That sort of thing. So that's why you need to know how it all works. Well, in 5th edition, well, ever since 3rd edition, I guess, we've had prestidigitation, which is, I guess, what J.K. Rowling thought of when the wizards in Harry Potter just poop in the corner and then make it disappear. <laughs> <laughs> prestidigitation meant something else when I was a well, now, <laughs> now it includes uh, cleaning a soiled object up to one meter square, I think. Does it? Something, well, like, something I, like that. I and, I, and every single laundry is out of business, just yeah. like that. Because yeah. one foot square, that that's my underwear. You know. Don't worry, not a lot of players like to take it because it doesn't have any like cool like big game effect like mending or, or like uh, light spells or anything like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Player characters don't like being clean. Most- one of the most fun things you can do for a starting D&D crew is make them all spellcasters and give them all the, quote, useless spells and nothing else. And then they have to come up with creative ways to use those useful, useless spells to do things with. Yeah. And all around them, you have people hurling magic missiles and fireballs and lightning bolts, and you go, you better stay out of their way. That's somebody who really knows how to do their stuff. You, on the other hand, <laughs> are, are making five-foot square blocks of ice for some reason. <laughs> you see, you could be rich because you could keep everybody's food from spoiling. And you just go from house to house and sell those five-foot blocks of ice. You are the ice man. We you saw- grew up in rural Ontario, that's what you had. I saw global warming in the realms. The ice man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I'm old enough to remember the Iceman coming by my grandmother out in Credit, Ontario. Mm. The it was a horse-drawn wagon with ice in the back, covered with straw, so it wouldn't melt. And wow. you bought ice and you put it in your ice box, 
And the next day you bought more ice and put it in your ice box. And the stuff wasn't too rotten when you cooked it because <laughs> it had been on ice. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> speaking of tangents, yeah, <laughs> which I can leap off of. And with well, I was going to say, you're talking about the past, right? But uh, what do you think? And then we've spoken a lot about the past, the history of Forgotten Realms and the history of Dungeons and Dragons uh, in the last two podcasts. Uh, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts on the future? of Dungeons and Dragons or tabletop RPGs or fantasy in general? Like, where do you think, because there's more, every year there's more and more fantasy authors and kids are lucky nowadays because there's tons of young adult novels, great fantasy like Rick Riordan, right? Uh, J.K. Rowling, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, where do you think, like, is that, is that trend going to continue? Do you think it's just going to keep exploding the way it is? Or are we going to hit, or have we already hit like a, a plateau? Well, I don't know about plateaus, but the stuff that used to be our guilty secret is now mainstream. Mm -hmm. uh, Hollywood is making the sort of movies that, as a kid, I dreamed of seeing on the screen. And they're making them because guys of my age now own and run movie studios. And they're making the sort of movies they wanted to see when they were kids. Right, Fast and the Furious. Yeah, oh, but <laughs> everything, um, all the Marvel Universe movies, you yeah. know, um, Star Wars, um, somebody finally getting the gumption and going to the expense of trying to adapt Lord of the Rings as, and then The Hobbit uh, on the, onto the movie screen. I mean, this is all stuff that um, it, fantasy and science fiction are almost becoming mainstream. Mm -hmm. And what that usually means, and we've seen it before, because I grew up the time when um, Elvis Presley and the Beatles and the British Invasion was changing good old Buddy Holly's rock and roll. And then we thought, oh, this is it. This is the way of the future. And then came prog rock and Genesis and all that. Oh, this is really cool. And then Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath. And I, oh, this is cool. And then that all got swept away and we had punk bands. You see, so you always think, oh, this is it. And then it changes. And you just can't see how the changes are going to happen. Something new comes along, and most of the new things that come along are fads. We try them, and they die. We try them, and they die. And suddenly something new comes along, and it changes everything. J.K. Rowling changed everything. Before that, way before that, generations before that, Tolkien had changed everything. Mm -hmm. And it changed everything because this mild-mannered Oxford professor published these books, which did poorly in the marketplace. But then some American college students discovered them. Ace um, did a pirate edition of them in paperback so these people could A, get them in the United States and B, afford them. And suddenly it was all the rage. And it sort of took the world by storm and fantasies suddenly came in trilogies and that was a big new thing mm. of course it doesn't seem that way to you guys because it's always been there to you guys you know just as D, D has always been there to you you know but i remember before i remember both ways the world was sepia and white. We all moved around in jerky manners. And, 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 and babies just sort of came out of nowhere because 
Ladies didn't do that. <laughs> or at least not on your uh, movie screen. I was uh, delivered by Stork. <laughs> I could say something here. <laughs> maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll cut in here. Uh, maybe it's a good segue then. Um, I have a little bit of a selfish question. Uh, I um, I primarily play clerics, and uh, I uh, I really enjoyed. Um, the Time of Troubles uh, plotline from way back when. So uh, this might be a little too specific for those who are not as aware of, you know, the Forgotten Realms history. Um, and uh, I have to say, like, you know, in recent years, I've been looking back at things that were sort of seminal moments for certain ideas. And I think that, especially with the Time of Troubles, because I, I just love mythology in general, um, pantheons in general. But to have a, a storyline in which, you know, the, the various characters and the various gods... Uh, become um, well fallible, and, and there's ascension, and there's all these sorts of you know switching of places. Uh, that that really changed my perspective, you know, because I think traditionally when you have like Greek pantheons and so on and so forth, they're not movable, right? They're they're sort of <clears throat> they don't change, right? And and to have like a transitioning, and and of course the pantheons of Forgotten Realms have been evolving constantly over all these years. Um, I uh, anyway, I, I'm trying to get to a point. Um, I guess my question, though, is, is more general. It's just to say that, like, with your approach to the Pantheon specifically in the Forgotten Realms, what were some of the, I guess, inspirations, or was there something that I'm almost afraid to ask now, you know, some of the inspirations <laughs> for other things, but what was the inspiration for the Pantheon specifically for Forgotten Realms? Okay. Uh, there is actually a, a Dragon article I wrote called Down to Earth Divinity. I when none of us got to choose the titles of our, that was all done by the editor. Okay. Um, way back in the early days of Dragon, I laid out the Forgotten Realms Pantheon. Not out of, you know, great hubris. Hi, I'm this guy you've never heard from up in Canada. So I'm going to show you how to do the gods. But I wanted to show one way of doing the gods. Mm -hmm. And one way of doing the gods for the realms was to reflect every alignment in a balanced tiered thing and so that each alignment had a greater god an intermediate god um and a demigod mm. in, in the parlance of the time and i deliberately wanted there to be so many deities and aspects of um so, some some deities were aspects of other deities so that if you if your player characters burst into the temple and there were all these guys in long robes muttering over some lady with no clothes on on the altar. You couldn't immediately go up and attack them because they might not be evil. Mm -hmm. Sounds that, might be, that might be a, a, a Shanti fertility ritual. And they were making sure that there were going to be abundant crops. And it might be nothing bad was going to happen to that lady on the altar. She was a willing participant in the ritual. And... The whole point of that was just to make sure that it forced you back into role-playing. Right. Instead of just, oh, these are bad guys. They must be cultists. We'll just drive our swords through them. Which is a terrible attitude to have towards religion and <laughs> and its clergy. Oh, a guy in a robe. I'll stick my sword through him. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it, we were restoring role-playing to the whole. Because, again, the early D&D was full of guys who, you know, um, there was actually a monster in one of the very early D&D dungeons, which was the evil adept, hmm. i.e. priest in black robe, 
who wow. is doing unspeakable things. And when you attack him, he, he's casting spells and he's got this wavy bladed knife and he's going to cut the heart out of some lady who forgot to put her clothes on before she lay down on the altar. You know, um, and, and when you approach him, he gestures wildly at you and snakes come out of both his sleeves and fly through the air at you and bite you. You know, it's sort of like like priest equals evil. And I right. wanted to break that. I just wanted to, and I wanted to have the gods to be like the Roman and Greek gods of our youth, they are superhumans, as in overblown humans. They're not perfect. They're not all-seeing. And the other thing is, if you're going to have adventures with adventurers, your mortal player characters, and their, their deeds are going to have any meaning at all and any worth at all, you can't have prophecies. Or at least, you can't have infallible properties. You can have the one ring to rule them all. And everybody goes, the hell does that mean? You can have cryptic stuff, but you can't have stuff that you can follow like a script. Because then your heroes aren't heroes. They're just following a script. You can't have inescapable fate. You have to have free will and free action. So therefore, the gods can't be all-seeing and all-knowing. And I hated gods in the early write-ups that, oh, um, Thor's hammer never misses. Odin's spear never misses. Oh, please. Just make it a, just make it a very high roll. There should always be a chance. Mm. You know, I don't want any absolutes. And so I was building a, um, godhoods like that because I wanted – you see, here's the thing that got totally de-emphasized in the game. And it got totally de-emphasized because of angry teenage mothers from heck, which is what TSR called them. <laughs> and the, the satanic panic and the fact mm. that um, holy rollers in the United States would pick up the monster manual and say, the word devil is in this book 37 times. And demons, demons are in this book too. You know, mm. And they would <coughs> use it to vilify the game. Yeah. And because of that, TSR censored out all my cleric stuff. See, I didn't want the gods to be presented in the game as avatars with stuff. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to be awe and wonder and mysterious. And they would manifest. Like, you would call on Lysander, the god of the morning. And if Lysander liked what you were proposing or offering, a rosy glow would suddenly suffuse the altar. And everybody would go, whoa, oh, Lysander, he heard you. You know, and it would be mysterious and awe-inspiring. What I wanted in the game was, okay, if you're a cleric, you aren't just a fighter who can't use edge weapons and can sell their healing spells to everybody else in the party, which is what some people used to do. Well, what do you give me if I heal you? That's going to raise dead? That's going to cost you. That's going to cost you your very life. Give me your castle. You know, I mean, there were people who ran clerics like that. What I wanted instead was, okay, if you're a priest of this god, here are your do's and here are your don'ts. This is what you wear. This is how you pray. You can't kick a cat. You can't um, burn your hair. You can't cut your hair. Whatever it is. Okay. I needed a complete ethos. And here's... Here's what you are supposed to do to make yourself a royal pain in the ass to everybody else in your party. Did you know that you shouldn't kink cats? I need <laughs> you to all give me a copper piece because the next cat we have, we're going to 
we're going to establish a home for cats or, you know, so there'd be the thing that really made you a pain in the patoot to everybody else in your party. And then there was also the thing, the worldly secular aim that your priesthood was secretly into, like Mm -hmm. the Holy Church of Savras wants to corner the market on drugs or whatever (laughs) it is. Okay. So the priesthood would be trying to buy up all the barges in Christendom. So every time you need, needed a barge, the rent you paid went to the church. <laughs> so they all had a – and they were all meddling in kingdoms. Well, we like this king, and when he dies and pops off, we're supporting prince number three because he's in our pockets. Right. Except the next priesthood has prince number two in their pockets. So, I mean and, – and I was building that in a webwork all over the place just because – they are endless story generators. Mm-hmm. And you can have priests that have secular aims, like the whole church has a secular aim, without them being evil or two-faced or anything like that. And the other thing is, and in the realms, they do this. Priests take uh, temples, large temples, they take in all the orphans. Mm. They are the mail service. They send a priest to the next temple with temple messages and holy incense and offerings, and he carries all the little doodads. He's FedEx, okay? <laughs> you need to send a key to your grandma? He carries the key for a fee and delivers it. He carries a written message. He carries a memorized message. And so, of course, if, if you're a small merchant and you want to order 32 statues, you can – Send your order by the merchant and pay through the nose, or you can pay a little less to the priest, and he'll deliver the message, and the guy will send the order back on the next. So the temples are doing all this useful stuff. They are your healing. They are your mending. They are the, they are the uh, Better Business Bureau. <laughs> yeah. they, they tell you, this craftsman can be trusted. Mention my name. You know, They do all that so they get their cut. But at the same time, they funnel business to people who are devout and give a kickback. And you think, oh, that isn't – aren't they all worms? Well, no, they're not all worms because that's the way the system works. Everybody benefits. And then when there's bull weevils or whatever and the cotton crop fails or there's termites and all the trees that the woodcutter uses crash and fall down, the temple is what keeps him from starving. He goes to them and says, hey, we've worked together all these years. Now I'm down on my luck. And they give him a, a temple carving job to tide him over. Right. You see, the, they are the backbone of civilized society because they're not doing what all the knights and kings, oh, I have to have another war. Whoa, war. You know, the temple goes, uh, could you please wait till we get the crops in? You <laughs> do want someone alive to fight next year's campaign, don't you? Oh, oh. All right. I don't want to listen to you, stupid priest. I would remind you how much money you owe us. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Occasionally, occasionally a king will do what um, King Philip did to the Knights Templar. Yeah, I'm going to take care of my debt. Yeah, you're all heretics. Die, die, die. You know, (laughs) but most of the time, the king will play along. So therefore, your civilizing influence, the people who's making sure... But, you know, my liege, although I know you desperately want the queen next door, why don't you perhaps um, build a better road to her kingdom first? 
Then you can invade in style. Oh, <laughs> thinking. I, I had better fix all the bridges, and yeah, and the merchants will thank you. <laughs> you see, and that sort of thing happens all the time. And you, and the moment you get into this sort of thinking and this yeah. level of thing, it's a whole new world of intrigue and fun and stories if you're writing fiction and campaign prime movers if you're role-playing. And the game just sort of ignores that. Uh, how many hit points um, does mm-hmm. the dragon have? Okay, how much experience do I get for killing it? Now, it was sitting on some treasure, right? Nope. It's sitting on the bones of previous adventurers who were just as stupid as you were. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, where's its treasure? How do you think the dragon survived this long? He paid (laughs) off the adventurers who were going to kill him, but you didn't give him a chance. But, of course, he'd already spent his last gold on the last sort of adventurer. So, yeah, maybe you should have killed him. But it's too late now for him to tell you where he hid all his other treasure. Because he's sort of <laughs> a little too dead to tell you. you know? and, and, you, and, and the moment you start thinking like that, you've got yeah. these endless adventures you're generating. And, and there's a whole new level of fun. That yeah. The game just passes over. Because the game has to be all things to all people. And at its heart, most people start with a dungeon crawl. You know, go into the dungeon, kill the monster, take its treasure. Hey, we're great. And because the game is presented, the game is so hard to get into and learn unless you sit down and play with somebody who already knows how. And by the way, the various editions of the game have been getting better and better over the years at teaching somebody who just buys the game cold and is sitting alone in their room, they can actually start to understand it. Yeah. But of course, all the online stuff and twitching, Twitch TV and so on, that all made it so much easier because you could actually see other people playing now mm-hmm. for the first time. Um, but, but no, that's how I did the clerics and gods. And again, when I did Storm Talents, by contrast, I cut it down to six deities. Because I wanted to see what happens. Okay, let's pull it. Let's pull it right back. Yeah. Does this model still work with very few? And the thing I wanted to do for Storm Talents and haven't had time yet is I wanted to have complete prayers and everything written up. <laughs> and this is how you dress. This is how you pray. These are your holy days throughout the year. And this is what you're trying to do in life. A, for yourself, so you retire with a little pile. And B, for the God. Because the God tells his church, I want you to corner the market on alligators. <laughs> or I want, or whatever, you know. <laughs> oh, brilliant. But I yeah. mean, that, that's so much fun with this game. You can, for the rest of your life, you can go mad. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're already mad, you can give yourself something uh, of a diversion. Well, the great thing about D&D is if you're not crazy already, we'll train you. Yes. Oh, yeah. It works with other other games, too. I remember going across Australia with um, Wes Nicholson, who was one of the RPGA um, Adventures League forerunner um, captains. He was captain for Australia. And um, Magic the Gathering was coming out brand new at that time. It was still an exciting thing. And he would buy boxes of decks and he would sit in the hotel room in his undies at night 
opening all the decks and going through and finding all the rare cards. And I can still remember him bursting out of a hotel somewhere and under a gum tree in the middle of the Australian outback going, I got Johan, I got Johan. And he's waving this card around. And the tourists who are out drinking for the evening, <laughs> sitting on their front porch of their little housekeeping unit, are watching this guy holding up a playing card going, I got Johan. They're going, amazing, mate. What a <laughs> drinking. Because I need some. Holy crap. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing you can do to entertain yourself. It is just a little rectangle of cardboard with some ink on it. But we conjure up meaning. We conjure up emotion. We conjure up an entire story from that little rectangle of cardboard with ink on it. Squiggly ink. And this is how writers come to rule the world. <laughs> or not. Mainly or not. <laughs> Unless your name is Stephen King, probably, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Next question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I can bring this up. This is the nerdiest thing I've ever bought, I think. Um, and that's no insult to whoever invented the calendar of Harp Dose. But people sell these now. You're kidding. I kid you not. Wow. I think it came from. Yeah. And it's got all the big cons in it, which are currently being canceled. Um, yeah. <laughs> Like it's got Gary Con, it's got uh, Can Games Con. What is that? Origins. Like nothing useful. It doesn't have Christmas, right? It doesn't have. It doesn't have any any real holiday. It doesn't have Family Day, right? It's got the birthday of birthday of Gary Gygax, first day of Gen Con. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Nothing about Ed Greenwood. Strangely, uh, kind of insulting. I think. Uh, well, oh yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I don't have I don't have a PR firm. That's my problem. Oh. No, no, Do you know it's, it's okay. Who whose idea was the calendar of Harptos? Because I find it infinitely fascinating. Like I, I don't know why I'm obsessed with this calendar. The original calendar of Harptos is mine. I just made it up. Oh, okay, cool. Um, it's in uh, Dragons Thirty Nine, I think. The Merry months of Myrtle. <laughs> Again, I don't come up with the titles. Um, yeah. I just needed a calendar for the realms and i and i didn't want them saying thursday the 23rd of january it just didn't sound fantasy enough so i just made one up but no i didn't realize it had turned into a an actually useful convention calendar but well, no the original calendar art was i just made up yeah like there's no like at this bit you're being a leap year it does have uh what is it high sun harvest what's it Mm -hmm. Chris Perkins' birthday. That's Chris true. Chris Perkins yeah. is a February 29th baby. But there's no. Means I think he's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why he's like uh, 500 years old. Yeah, uh, yeah, or four or something. Like, like it's currently chess, <laughs> but there's only 29 days in February. But because of the calendar of Harptos being three 10 days, yep. it has a 30th of chess, which would be the first yes. Mar uh, first of March for us. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted a nice, even calendar. And being as I created the planet, um, yeah. I could uh, I could adjust everything so the three ten days per month worked perfectly with the festivals in between. And and uh, I understand that Wizards has monkeyed slightly with the calendar for this edition. Um, 
my 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 D and D sage friends tell me, "Oh, they changed the calendar. Is nothing sacred?" <laughs> and I said, "It's all imaginary, guys. Really, I just made it up in an afternoon." <laughs> yes, <laughs> but it is written. There's nothing yeah, to yeah, stop yeah. anybody from using the uh, the older ones. That's right. We we use the old ones and we like it. That's right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There was a time when I was young and beautiful. Sadly. <laughs> That was I think we can all say that. Except for Dave. I mean, I mean, I'm still young and beautiful. <laughs> uh, well, I guess uh, as a bit of a minor segue, uh, were there any events? <laughs> he said, hey, <laughs> I don't know. We're just like just talking now. It's like there's no structure. I'm not even going to fake it. told you the most chaotic podcast if I hosted. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. No, this is yeah. this has been fantastic. Yeah. Um, we were wondering if, because, uh, you know, you've been playing all this time as well. Uh, were there any, like, in-game things that happened that made their way into something in the Forgotten Realms that, like, inspired by a session that you were running or playing? Oh, on? yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, there'd be a <laughs> well, lot. Okay. Just a few, maybe. That, that, <laughs> that, that works in, in two or three different ways. Um, later on, TSR uh, in the later days of TSR, but before Wizards, they would have me playtest things. Right. And they would make them into the game. Um, and then there were things that we put into the game for fun, like Fell Pass, which was an early um, dragon um, adventure that I put into the realms and was almost a total party kill. Um, but there were lots <laughs> of early shenanigans um, that the Swords of Evening Star, later the Knights of Mithranor, um, and the company of Crazed Venturers, who were before that, and they explored Undermountain and a little side shoot of Undermountain called the Dungeon of the Crypt, which actually you go into a crypt in the City of the Dead, you lift the stone lid of the coffer, and there, then you lift the corpse out in its shroud, and then you lift the false bottom of the coffer, and then you go down the stairs into the dungeon of the crypt. And it eventually, through a fireplace and so on, a fireplace shaft, if you climb up the shaft, um, it wiggles around and connects with um, Undermountain. Uh, <laughs> so they they all um, explored all of these things. And, of course, they found their way into the published realms because the bits that where they'd had the most fun were the right. bits that I had handy to send off to Jeff. So they made it into the old gray box, the, the foundation right. box set but yeah, yeah, there are a lot of things that made it into it, and uh, yeah, this is the, the original version. one, not yeah. that one. Yeah, it's the newer version. Yeah, um, but uh, there are a lot of things from the early um, play that made it into the realms, yeah. and of course, I was shamelessly using Dragon Magazine. You see, in those days, everybody in the hobby read Dragon Magazine. Yeah. DMs, players, but they didn't bring it to the table. So if I wrote up a magic item, a spell, or a monster, and it appeared in Dragon, I figured it had been vetted by the editors. Mm. And it was now, at least if it was a monster, it was official. It was mm -hmm. in the Dragon's Bestery, which was labeled official. You know, had been featured creature. Um, and they vaguely remembered reading about it from a couple months ago, which simulated their character hearing about it in a tavern or something. Right. But they didn't have it in front of them to go, oh, this has 
three plus three hit dice, and if we yell Thursday, it falls over dead. <laughs> they didn't have the, the stuff from the game right in front of them to metagame and cheat. They just had this vague memory of, yeah, it's something to do with its scales, man. You know, and which was which was legit. And I felt better at throwing this at them. So all of that stuff made it into the game. Uh, in terms of uh, history and some of the stuff, some of the stuff in the history of uh, the Water Davian noble families, stuff right. that happened in Cormier, stuff that happened in the Dales, was all stuff from my original campaign. Yeah, that's what we figured. Cool. Wah! <laughs> <laughs> and my gamers are now all over the world. They have to get on planes to come and play. Huh. So, well, hopefully not right now. <laughs> no, not right now. It would um, not be possible. <laughs> uh, we used to, for some years um, when I when I still had a cottage. Somebody burned it down in a forest fire. But I used to have two cottages side by side in Muskoka, and one of them my wife would stay in, and that was the cottage. And the other one was the workshop, and that's where we gained. Oh and um, we would meet for the August long weekend at my cottage and play games. And then we would meet for New Year's Day, not New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, bring your hangover, and we'd play a whole day in the realms. And that's what it had devolved into when we were no longer all in school or university and had all joined the real world and were productive members of society, spread out across all of the globe and could no longer get together. That's when we'd, we'd get together hmm. twice a year. Oh, and now it's not even that. Yeah. Oh, nice. It, it was uh, beautiful. <laughs> I know last uh, episode, me and Mark were talking about how we're trying to get our kids to start playing D&D. At least we're looking at different ways to introduce them to the play style or the game. Do you have any suggestions for introducing them to the Forgotten Realms? Mm. Well, if I'm using my father's psychology, <laughs> you put everything, all the cool realms, maps and everything on a table... And then you say to your kids, when I come back here, I don't want to see that any of this has been touched. And then you walk out of the room. <laughs> Works every time. Sure working. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but the best way to, to um, uh, is, is to get your kids capture the excitement of it. So you, you seize on some element or corner of the realms where there's intrigue, like fighting for the the throne in Cormier or um, the noble families of Waterdeep are up to something again involving putting their candidates among the masked lords and getting rid of the ones that are there and make it a real intrigue thing and phone your friends and talk about it. You know, as in, well, what if we turn Lord Marshimber? Offer him a pile of gold. No, he already has a pile of gold. Offer him your daughter. No, thank you. You know, it's sort of like that. You go back and forth um, talking like that, and then you then you say, oh, the kids are listening. They mustn't hear this, and then you hang up. So you do, you've now, now established that it's really cool, and it's exciting, and they're not supposed to be part of it. And then, after you've done this for two or three weeks and they're really intrigued and you're you refuse to talk about it. oh i can't talk about that that's growing up stuff no no you're not old enough yet no really um no no no, no it wouldn't be appropriate then you come to them with this frown on your face and said i need your help 
and then you describe some corner of intrigue that you've backed yourself into. You say, what do you think I should do? Explain everything. Not the people involved that you've been talking to on the phone, but the characters in the game. So, you see, this family wants to own that downtown shop, but we daren't let them have it. Because we know somewhere in the walls, the body of that purple wizard is still bricked up. And we need to get the ones that are on him before they do. What do you think we should do? And then you leave the solution up to them. You involve them. And whatever crazy cockamamie thing they come up with, they say, geez, I don't know if that'll work. Maybe if you did it. But you're going to have to make up characters and like join this. And then you then you let them do it. You That's role genius. play it at your side. And then they're invested in it. And then if you can have some physical keepsake, mm. however crappy that you get from the thrift store or whatever that is cool, like a pipe or a, a carved wooden thing of some sort. So at the end of the game, they have something to hold in their hands, a trophy. And at the end of the game, you hand it to them. Well, you, it, this is yours. You earned it. And then they've got something. You see, it matters because they won it through their brilliance, through their role-playing. It doesn't matter because it's a little piece of crap. It matters because it was really hard to get, and they got it. It's amazing. That's, that's wonderful. It's, it, it's like when old soldiers you know, sitting around talk about what they did years ago in the war, and you go, yeah, yeah, as they take out their dentures, polish the, and take the scraps of food off them, pop them in their mouth for later and put the dentures back in. But you see, they're remembering when they were they were cool, and they were young, and they, they could change the world, and they were doing something important together, and they survived it, and it bonds them together. If you can get to bond with your kids in that way over something that is essentially imaginary. You're just all making this shit up as you go along. <laughs> but you give it meaning together because you you ascribe meaning to it. And they share your excitement if you communicate it right. And they have that excitement and they also have the achievement. They rescued the princess or they defeated the king or they rescued the kingdom, which is not something they'll get to do in grade three or grade four at recess. <laughs> but they can do it in the game. And then they'll be like, we did that cool thing together. And that's what matters. They did this cool thing together. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's an amazing that's uh, that's that's great advice. That's fantastic. A great way to structure it, you know, to really capture that uh, imagination. But the cool thing about role playing is that it is problem solving and teamwork and coming up with your own solutions. Mm -hmm. And a cool dungeon master, he doesn't make thing or he or she doesn't make things dead easy, but lets you try that thing and maybe just maybe it'll succeed. So you get to do something creative and you get to do something that matters. And that's the key. You have to make it matter. That's also the key to fiction that you love because the author makes you care. So what happens matters. Right. right. You hear that, guys? I'm a great dungeon master. 
<laughs> what? You almost killed me three times. What are you talking about? Yeah, but I'm... you earned it. <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> you said you wanted to tank, so that's... <laughs> you wanted to protect your team, and that's what you did. I don't know if I was protecting anybody. I was getting killed, but okay. Yeah, we, we appreciated it, Steve. Kalembor <laughs> appreciated it. I mean, that's the only reason I'm still yeah. alive. True. Anyway... <laughs> when I regained consciousness, <laughs> I've been that's saying pretty that a much lot. how it went. Yeah, yeah that's pretty much how it went. <laughs> one one hour later, oh, the cleric's awake again. We can adventure once more. We should stop poking him. Yeah, <laughs> someone give him his stuff back. <sighs> oh dear. <laughs> Why is this sounding so familiar? Because <laughs> there's only like five anyway. different friends you can have. That's every D&D party that has ever existed. That's that right. Moment. Well, uh, I know Mark wants to. I know I'm a, I'm a huge fan and I can't thank you enough for being here with us. And uh, oh, my pleasure. I mean, I got to I, tell I, a little more stories. I kid you not. We've been we've been chatting in the back, and I'm like, Ed, Ed could have his own podcast. Like you, legit, you could yeah. really just sit and and I'm people would listen. I kid, like we're enraptured, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who feel the same way. Like we like we could just sit here and let you talk, and we wouldn't have to say a thing, <laughs> and we could just upload that. <laughs> it's so entertaining. You see, like, getting me to talk. Is not hard. Getting me mm -hmm. to shut up, that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I, we know that now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and getting me to stay clean and pure and uh, 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 <clears throat> uh, shining pillar of society, that's even harder. <laughs> You're killing me. <laughs> <laughs> we don't all worship uh, Torm. No, no, no. Right. Uh, Definitely can't all be. Torm. <laughs> Torm the true. Exactly. Torm the thief. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. now, so, um, I know I personally want to say a big thank you because your world in specific and the worlds that have grown from it have done a lot for me in my life and a lot of other gamers. And we'd all like to give you a big thanks for giving us such a huge sandbox to play in. It's greatly appreciated. Oh, thank you. Thank you for loving the realms and buying all the stuff and therefore keeping it going because it means that's why we have a, a Forgotten Realms that's still alive, a product line that keeps going. Cause Not so forgotten. Saying, okay, I guess I'll buy that shit. <laughs> so they keep publishing it. So it's great. So thank you for loving the realms and using the realms and talking about the realms and tearing the realms apart and changing this bit of the realms and changing that bit of the realms because now my world can surprise me. It can have things in it that I didn't put there. And that's great. So I, I've had like 50 odd years of you know, sheer fun and games. So thank you. <laughs> Waha! It's all <laughs> thanks to you. And the world rests on your shoulders. Gentlemen. Ah, crap. <laughs> <laughs> We're in trouble. Yes, thanks. Thank you. Yes, for sure. You're very welcome, and thank you. Hey, it's this is the most wonderful hobby in the world uh, that doesn't involve illegal things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Ed, and thank you, 
Listeners, thank you for listening. Do you have any tips for world building? Uh, have a favorite fantasy series? Let us know. Send us an email. Contact us on social media. We're everywhere. And once again, thank you, Steve, Mark, Eric, and a huge thank you to Ed Greenwood for joining us on the show today. Oh, uh, thank you. And I've got some tips on world building. How much time do you have? Well, <laughs> and you can find Ed on Twitter and you can ask him as many questions as you want because he doesn't seem to stop answering them. <laughs> Uh, that's uh, yes, well. you can find him on Twitter at the Edverse. Uh, I don't know. Is that that's all you've got, right? Twitter. You're not on. You're not in. <laughs> I, I'm on Facebook of the Sages of the Forgotten Realms and Forgotten Realms Archives, but I I actually don't see that stuff okay. very often. So yeah, uh, tweet at me. Um, okay. Yeah, and I, and I I do participate in the Mages and Sages podcasts as well. Okay. That Jeff Thetford does, along with Eric Boyd and George Crashos, and, and we have guests like Aaron Evans and Matt Forbeck and people like that. You know, so I I, I do occasionally appear elsewhere, but if you guys need me to come back and and tell you all about the realms, uh, oh. you know, oh, wow. I, I can go <laughs> hours week. of air. <laughs> yeah. Every week, you, you want yeah. that definitely. <laughs> I will force this podcast to have a new name. <laughs> no, 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 no! Don't change anything on my behalf. What happens if I die tomorrow, and then you're stuck? Well, we'll just change it back. <laughs> oh. Change it back. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a lot of artwork for me to change. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yes. don't don't make him change the artwork. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, awesome. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Uh, I'm David, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Well, that's it for us this week on Geeks with Kids. If you want to get a hold of us, you can send us an email at podcast at geekswithkids.ca, and don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com/geekswithkids. Follow us on Twitter at geekswithkidscn. Check out our pics on Instagram at geekswithkids. And you can find all of this good stuff on our website at www.geekswithkids.ca. So if you like what you hear, why don't you hit that subscribe button and leave us a comment. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, and your favorite podcasting app. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.